Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look into our favorite properties. Today's episode dives deep into the Assassin's Creed franchise, the Ubisoft property that has ups and downs since its massive debut in 2007. We're here to talk about that trajectory and our personal take on what's happened since. But before we analyze how nothing is true and everything is permitted, here's a few housekeeping items. We are Joe and Mark. The two guys talking to you today. You're mostly humble hosts who manage this homegrown operation. After you've enjoyed this conversation, please help us by liking, commenting, and subscribing at the Digital Dissection Podcast on YouTube. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for at Digital Dissect One or Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. You'll notice we say this unapologetically every week. What this does is help us grow and to keep providing that sweet, sweet content you crave. You know, Joe, I remember one of the earliest like bonding moments we had uh, was pretty much, well, outside of drinking, you know, at the same college and somehow missing each other at every possible turn. Yeah, that still um, baffles me how we completely missed that. <laughs> we, we hung out with some of the same people, had some of the same favorite places to be around in campus, basically had the same major for a few years, never yeah. saw each other. Literally the same building. I mean, same professors. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was it was through that discussion and and starting to talk about things that we had in common that we discovered that we both secretly were huge Assassin's Creed fans. Yeah, we had we were wearing our uh, our white hoods on the inside and not <laughs> wait. I should I should rephrase that because that could if you're not a familiar with this franchise that will go the wrong way really fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that, that's, that's yeah, that's bad. That's horrible. That that's came horrible. out all sorts of wrong. <laughs> oh, wow, <laughs> we well, can that, do better. Yeah, that, that, um, that's that's okay. To the credit of the Assassin's Creed, I mean, they kind of brought back, you know, wearing these cool hoods, right? Like these mm-hmm. are these are hoods that have that beak that comes off of it, which you know is just a a, a huge call to the series being tied in with birds of prey. And, and kind of tying assassins and, and these birds that, you know, kill prey animals, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's one of the, the themes that you see throughout the series. So, yeah, definitely not a KKK thing. No, I just want to be no, very sure about not, that. Not the direction they were going in or the one that we meant to go in there. Oof, yeah. Rough start with the podcast today. Oh, it's okay, though. <laughs> it's okay. You know, sometimes we don't know how things are going to sound until we say them. And I would mm-hmm. say that is definitely one of them. But. I will say that back in 2007, right, we were all kind of trying to call our shot, you know, with the PlayStation and trying to figure out, you know, what the the best launch titles were going to be, right? Mm-hmm. The, the PS3 had come, just come out. Um, you know, there, there were some titles that came out. I remember there was that one where you could basically fly on a dragon. You know, there was this thing called, uh, oh man, I can't, I think it was called Lair. I want to say Is it was it called Lair? Lair. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the launch titles for the PlayStation mm-hmm. 3 totally bombed i mean it was hard to control uh i mean it looked really cool don't get me wrong Mm -hmm. um but the game itself just didn't offer a whole lot and no and so that's that's kind of why assassin's creed just all of a sudden becomes this refreshing and you know fairly layered experience and you just don't usually get that uh, in a launch title no no you really don't and then looking at like the playstation other like you said other playstation 3 launches like i can think of only one other launch title that that really comes close to the series. And again, it's one of my other favorite series. It's probably my absolute favorite series. Uh, and that's Uncharted. 
Um, oh yeah, yeah. But uh, but other than those two titles, like what you had, Knack. Yeah, um, the puppetry which, one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it, it well, was what it was. To its credit, it was still. I mean, this the stylistic view of that was kind of cool because you're mm-hmm. you're your puppet and and you're basically playing like you're part of a stage operation, you know. So that at least had something interesting to it. But you know, with Assassin's Creed, what we got was this this kind of a. It, it was almost like the Christopher Nolan effect where. In between the Batman movies, you know, he just gets thrown money and they say, you know, go and make another movie, bring it to us and we'll, we'll see how it goes. And all of a sudden he comes up with an inception, right? Yeah. You know, so that's kind of what Ubisoft did with Assassin's Creed. You know, they they come out with this AAA style title and it's just got a ton of stuff in it that um, that just hadn't really been explored before. You know, we've got this, this period piece, this period games set in. Uh, you know, it, it's actually set in a time um, during the Crusades and it introduces people to history in a way that they hadn't seen it before. Right. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, and like you said, this first game starts in the Third Crusade. Um, and many people, when they hear the Crusades, they just think it was like one thing, just just the one, just the one Crusade. But no, there were multiple Crusades and the lengths that the game really goes to to try and recreate like the town, the same kind of towns, the cities and the cultures that were like there and clashing at the time, like it hadn't really been done at that level before. Um, like not even close. I can't think of another game that that really did that. Mm-hmm. Like, you, I mean, you definitely had like other period games, like you had Dynasty Warriors and everything, but that was more of a over glorification of um, historical figures that it kind of made them into these larger than life um um characters whereas this is much more of taking historical figures and really making them more human i would say than anything else um it does a good job of of taking uh those characters that we normally think of larger than life we kind of see just how human they are yeah i i i didn't mean to talk over you but i mean the the word accessible is usually what i thought of mm-hmm. uh, you know yeah. be, because you take these these people that you have images of and you've, you've heard about them in a history book but then when you're actually presented with something tangible that you can look at you know you can you can try to understand motivations and things like that um that just gives you a little bit more to invest in you know because history can be dry don't get me wrong oh yeah um, mm-hmm but ultimately what the original Assassin's Creed was built on was a pretty solid foundation because uh, it was actually meant to be a sequel to their Prince of Persia series where you play as an assassin who is trying to protect the next future you know, king, right? Mm-hmm. And as Ubisoft developed this game, um, their leadership thought, well, why are you playing a Prince of Persia game and you're not actually playing anyone from the royalty? Yeah. And so that's how this game kind of grew or basically went down its own path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's kind of, you know, that's relatively well-known knowledge, right? But I would imagine, yeah. yeah. There are a lot of, lot of top tens out there or uh, Did You Know series that, that go into a lot of like, and they do a good job of going into the, the, the development history of the game. Yeah, but what they mm-hmm. don't go into sometimes um, are these specific texts that influenced you know some of these decision making? Mm-hmm. So, what I wanted to actually bring up was the Alamut, which is a uh, a novel written by Vladimir Bartol, and it was actually published, I believe, in 1938. So, oh, what back it, there? Yeah, it goes back a little yeah, ways. It's back there. I mean, you're yeah, talking like, talking 14th century. 
that's almost Metropolis days back Ooh. in 1938, right? <laughs> but it deals with the story of Hassani Sabah, who was literally the leader of what was the true life origin or the true life inspirations for the assassins. So the Alamut actually uh, discusses, you know, some of the war at the time, what uh, would be in modern day Iran, essentially. Mm -hmm. So what Alamut was actually, uh, it was a castle. So Alamut Castle was actually stormed uh, by this, this sect of, you know, uh, folks in, in Shia Islam there at the time. And they, they captured this castle um, and Hassani Sabah and his people pretty much, you know, they take it over and they basically start their own, I don't want to call it a crusade because that would be double dipping here, but yeah. they basically started to, um, you know, basically use their skills and their, their ability to kill people, which they were quite adept at. And they used it to attack individuals in the area um, who they, you know, saw either as a threat to, you know, maybe their claim to certain mm -hmm. things. And so we started to get this early influence of assassins, right? This idea of assassins. Um, and so that's what the, the folks at Ubisoft used to kind of formulate, uh, you know, the, the assassin order, right? So that's how we got Matsayaf Castle, because it was supposed to mimic this, this Syrian, you know, castle that, um, that Saban and his folks actually took over. So that's where that comes from. Now, I will say, be the first to say that the uh, Alamut, you know, castle looks absolutely nothing like the assassin <laughs> like <Mata's> castle <laughs> yes yeah there was a little liberty taken for the sake of the video game yeah yeah slight yeah mm -hmm. just slight liberties taken there because you know Matsayaf is a gorgeous castle you know it's it's basically like i, I want i mean when i think of this i think that the castle itself is maybe like 10 stories up on the side of this mountain and it's built right into the side of it i mean when you play the first game and some of the adjoining ones i mean it's it's a grand thing right oh yeah so first thing I think of is if you're an assassin and you're somebody that wants to go unnoticed, why would you have would you this be, yeah, beacon for your, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But even then, like that was definitely, um, I don't know about like maybe having a beacon. That's probably a terrible idea. Having a not so secret hideout for your group of killers. But they were also like, from my recall, or I think I read, like they actually were very public with their killings. Um, like they actually kind of wanted to be seen doing it right. Oh, it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the so the the Hashishin is what they were known as, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, there's there's some disagreement on how the Hashishin actually carried out some of these assassinations, right? But if you just think of the name Hashishin, what's the root word of that? It's hashish, which mm -hmm. would mean some type of recreational drug, right? If you've ever seen hash, which those of us <laughs> who have been in college have probably heard of it at least mm -hmm. once. Well, that's where some of this reputation came from. So people thought that the Hashishin would, you know, basically take copious amounts of drugs. And like you mentioned, they would go into these high profile assassinations, basically to inspire fear. And that's how some of these guys worked up the courage to be able to do this. They would just get stoned out of their mind and Leroy Jenkins right into a crowd of people and, and take out that target. Well, I mean, I just assume that's how you had fun the 12th century. They didn't have like the comforts we have today. So they had to get really high and just, you know, run into crowds of people and kill them. That was yeah, fun. I, mean, yeah. I, I assumed. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to go punch somebody, you'd just slam mm -hmm. a rock star. Not a, not a sponsor, by the way. No, not a sponsor. No, and, no, no. And you'd just go right off and, and, and punch that guy. Right. So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, a little, little bit different, but a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. definitely frowned upon today. Um, yeah. yeah, just slightly, you know, a little but, bit, a little bit. Yeah, but but that's ultimately um, what I think Ubisoft did really well in the beginning of this. Like, like they mm-hmm. gave us some real world, you know, uh, stories to kind of look back to and and understand where they came from in their development, right? Because one of the things that Assassin's Creed did get a bad reputation of as we went was that we got these annual entries, right? Mm-hmm. So usually annual entries always inspire fatigue. Just, yep. you know, just natural how it goes. That's oh, yeah, why Call of Duty. saturation to any franchise could happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Madden suffers that. Call of Duty suffers that. So that kind of stuff happens. Um, but what I would like to stress about, you know, about Assassin's Creed and some of these other AAA titles is that just because you get an annual entry in a series does not mean that they're just being made quickly to be thrown out the door, right? Yeah. Uh, no. A lot of these 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 games have development cycles anywhere from you know i would i would say on the short end maybe like three years sometimes as high as seven Mm -hmm. and and ubisoft is only able to do this is because they have teams working concurrently across the globe to to do this yeah they have what they have uh, do they they have like two different studios working on these games at any given time oh it's more than that i mean they They've got, uh, you know, folks based out of Montreal. They've got mm-hmm. folks in, in France. I think they even have um, operations in, in Asian territories now. Oh, I didn't know about the Asian uh, territory ones. I mean, mm-hmm. Ubisoft is a, they're a global organization. So for them to be successful and to continue to to do this type of development, they have to mm-hmm. have multiple studios constantly working. So um, that's that's what I will say is for you know for multiple different teams focusing on you know, all these different games and, and actually having meaningful things that tie them together. This was a really good foundation to start with. Mm-hmm. I mean, now the first game itself was absolutely plagued with, you know, some of these monotony problems, you know, you've, you basically go to a location, you have your target that you have to kill, you know, you do some Intel on them mm-hmm. and, and how you gain the information is the same in every single city. Yeah. They, I mean, they give you different ways to, to, to get the information, but however, like it's the same like basically you can eavesdrop, you can interrogate, you can meet with some informants. Um, and you just do that in every city until you just basically, wasn't it like you just did that in every city until you just gained enough information, but you could, um, but the, eaves, but the events themselves, he's dropping the interrogation, the informants, like they randomly spawned. So you could say, do like five eavesdropping missions and then you're ready to go. Or you could do like two eavesdropping, one interrogation and two informants. Um, but I mean, at the same time, it's still like the same experience each time you go. And you're mostly correct, except for the fact they mm-hmm. weren't random. Okay. And, and that was the part that made it very like rigid because they were static experiences. Mm-hmm. If you had to go get information, there was a specific spot on the map. You went there, you got it. And really it, it almost became humorous because you're, you basically had to get approval, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go kill these targets and you had to have verifiable information. So it's almost like a journalist, you know, being, uh, you know, like, like his editor says, you know, Hey, we got to check your sources, right? <laughs> <laughs> we have to make sure if you're killing this guy, he's got to be the right guy. One, <laughs> we don't want to make that mistake again. Two, yeah. we got to make sure this guy actually did something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> make, make sure these are more than just unsubstantiated rumors. Yeah. If you're going to 86, this guy, we got to do it right. <laughs> you know? Um, but you know, ultimately though, um, Assassin's Creed, the original game, you know, it, it, it introduced us to a lot of cool things mm-hmm. and, and it was a different gaming experience. But um, in the early days of, of Assassin's Creed, they at least learned from 
you know, from one game to the next. So I will give them mm-hmm. credit for that. Um, one thing, though, that was nice about the first three games in, in the series was that the original creators of the game who worked for Ubisoft at, uh, at the time um, was Patrice Desolais, who worked on the first three games and then left for creative reasons. Um, and then uh, Jade Raymond and Corey May, they, they all were, were part of that uh, early team that helped create it. Um, so obviously they did something right because, you know, there's 20 games now. It's worth mm-hmm. over, you know, $300 million. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of good things they did. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's think of like, just kind of like the overarching um, story going for itself. That was really fun to play with. Cause like, when you look at it, you've got these two secret organizations that are both working behind the scenes and for what they both consider to be the good of the world. Uh, one just focuses on like, absolute freedom of the people and the other one focuses on the good of the people through order and mm-hmm. order usually equals like in this case at least in the first few games order is ugly because it's basically like being ruled under someone's boot and then they're just kind of keeping you keeping the masses safe while hurting a few by example and those mm-hmm. are the templars and then you've got the um the assassins who are working for absolute freedom and then through freedom people can choose whether or not to have a good life or a crappy life or what have you and we're peering into the past of these lives through a story that's also happening in the present through a uh, another protagonist mm-hmm. and which is also just a really cool concept that hadn't been done before this game of basically using our dna's stored memories um which i'm pretty sure again not actual scientist pretty sure it doesn't work that way um <laughs> they contain information and a lot of it is actually useless so if it did work that way it'd probably be like our ancestors like favorite colors um favorite things to do on a boring wednesday night it would be useless information that's stored not even the cool stories but anyway i digress yeah. well um, I, yeah I yeah, mean, yeah ultimately if this technology did exist i'd feel horrible for my ancestors because you know, they'd be like, man, this guy has watched a ton of television. Like this is the majority <laughs> of what I'm seeing, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, but, but I agree with you on, on the animus and just the idea of it, you know, even though some people were afraid of it, um, maybe being a bit too much like the matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I thought was really just cool is what you mentioned is the idea that you can pass down memories through your DNA, through your blood. And, and that's really what kind of determines this future timeline that you talked about, because there is that balancing act between the assassins and, and the Templars and this, this age-old struggle that we see. Um, and then they balance that out with this story in the future where we get to see how this conflict continues in the modern day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's really, uh, really cool that they, they found a way to balance that in the beginning where you're not seeing too much of the modern day. You're just getting enough to kind of help carry along the dialogue of the past. And, and so the, um, I will give them credit for that, you know, with launching this, this new idea and this new IP, um, that was one of the things they absolutely got right. Yeah. And then they, they did a really good job of, like you said, like not overwhelming you with the stuff that's in multiple storylines. So with like the, the, the present and the past and the way they did that is they made the present stuff actually be like a slow build. Like it was, you're, you're told something bad is going to happen. You're not told what it is. And it's mm-hmm. through these events in the past that you learn um, one, the location of artifacts that can help prevent this thing. Um, this, this bad event from happening so you mm-hmm. don't know what the event is for quite a few games and they just kind of keep slowly building the present line story up until eventually um you hit that climax of a modern day um catastrophe happening 
Yeah, like, do you remember uh, Shareware, like the where you would basically get a demo of a PC game back in the day? You know, like you'd, you'd be mm-hmm. able to play maybe like the first hour or two hours of the game, and then you had to pay to to unlock the rest of it. Oh yeah, like, that that's kind of what the the modern day Assassin's Creed experience felt like was that you know you got just enough of a of a of a bit of context, but it was always just a crumb. It was never the whole thing. Mm-mm. And, and so, you know, over time, right. Like we, we had to get through almost five games to really understand what that context led to. So um, that's what I think was, was one of the strong points of the early days of, of the series. And we'll, we'll talk about, you know, where this kind of goes awry later on. Um, but as far as the themes go of this, uh, this series, one of the early things I really thought was cool was mm-hmm. that, they don't really waste any time telling you what the Assassin's Creed is. It's no, it's, it's one of the don't. very one of the very first things you get. It's not like in a in a sci-fi movie that's you know where they have the title of the movie and they say it you know like an hour into it and you're like oh, oh, oh this is Superman for the quest for peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't they didn't do that and they and they delivered mm-hmm. it in a really cool way. But the Assassin's Creed is built on three tenets. So mm-hmm. it's. It's stay your blade from the flesh of an innocent. Okay, well, don't don't you know don't don't kill. kill again, that's why that's why you get the information. Yeah, yep. exactly. Mm-hmm. That's why we fact check. Yep. Uh, you hide in plain sight. Mm-hmm. You know, and never compromise the brotherhood. Um, so you know it's kind of funny how we had our you know our our discussion about robotics and Asimov. You know now we're looking at three other roles that are that are kind of similar. Um, what I do think that uh, Assassin's Creed did really well with this was that they do also drop uh, some information later on in the series about how the creed itself is a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if you remember this when uh, we find out that the Romans had some, you know, some commentary uh, on on the, the the creed itself. But their contradictions were: how can the assassins promote peace but still murder people? And how can they have open minds but demand obedience? And if blind faith is dangerous, why do they practice it? And yeah, so, yeah. So you're introduced to this right away. Like you're, you're thinking this is this is interesting. Like you've got warring, you know, groups of people worldwide, and it doesn't really seem like their, you know, their methods are are that far separated. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and so I, I think it was really cool that they they mentioned that right away. That there's maybe there's a little bit more to read into than than just the simplicity of the creed itself, and and there's going to be more consequences behind that too later on. Um, but the the first the first game itself, you know, focuses on uh, Altair Ibn Lahad, who was the you know this this maverick of the Assassin Order in the very beginning. Oh yeah, he does what he wants. He waits for no one. He's like, no, no, no. They, this, this is taking too long. Yeah, he doesn't. And I'm not, I'm not waiting anymore. He doesn't abide by the creed mm-hmm. at all. You know, the the dude does whatever he wants. And in the first game, I mean, he breaks literally every tenet within the first like three minutes. Yeah, it's... three minutes to break three rules. <laughs> he sees <laughs> no coincidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right away. And and so. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think with him, what was really cool is that when we start to look at the themes of the games themselves, the the first game really becomes this redemption arc because, you know, Altair, his his story is is pretty tragic, right? Like his mm-hmm. his family basically dies, his, his father dies at a very early age, um, and and so he has to basically rise to the ranks of the assassins pretty much on his own, um, and I believe he becomes the youngest ranked master assassin that the 
the Brotherhood ever had. Um, oh. So he he has this this tremendously quick rise within the order, but he does these ridiculous things, and so you know that's what leads to him being uh, stripped of his rank in the very beginning. If you remember, um, he breaks all the tenets of the of the creed and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, his mentor, Al-Mualim, you know, pretty much uh, slices up his gut and tells him, heal up and get better, boy. <laughs> yeah, which is also a great, um, great framework for just gaming in general, because uh, then you have to earn all those things back. So you get slowly introduced to new mechanics throughout the game. So you get new, uh, new weapons and new skills because you've been stripped of the weapons and stripped of the gear that allows you to do the skills. So it was just really like it was fun storytelling and just good, like, you know, gameplay mechanics wrapped into one nice little package. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know some people complained about it because it felt like it was a little too telegraphed. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't even really know what that means. You know, for, for me, I was just in the same camp you were yeah. like it's it's that uh, sequel effect. Right. Where like mm-hmm. your characters are worse off than they were in the first movie, you know, but <laughs> in, in this case, you're worse off than you were in the first five minutes. And so, yeah, it's, yeah it's only five minutes. And again, like you can't you can't just make the game be that easy right off the bat. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> it has to be yeah. challenging. Yeah. And, and, and once again, we're talking about themes of redemption here. So it's kind of funny because you're putting yourself in the shoes of Altair and then you have to go through the same journey that he does. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's just, I think it's a, it's a nice little mind game, you know, to, to play with people. Um, but, you know, once again, we've talked about how the first game, you know, it sets a lot of cool precedents, but it also leaves some things to be desired. And, and once mm-hmm. again, this is a, this is a reason why Ubisoft was, you know, they, they were actually doing a, a lot of good by listening to what people didn't like. And that's mm-hmm. why the the next game in the series did so well. Yeah. And uh, that game, the first game eventually does get a remaster where they do fix a lot of those, fix a few complaints that were made uh, when the first, when the first game came out. But yeah, um, going on to Assassin's Creed 2, which is probably arguably um, the best game in the series. And if not the most popular game uh, in the series. I would say amongst fans, mm-hmm. you know, in the early days, yeah. I mean, Ezio Auditore, the the main character of of the Assassin's Creed two, and then the following, you know, trilogy. I basically that you know came after mm-hmm. that. I mean, he he's so iconic, right? I mean, oh yeah. When we think about the periods that the game has taken place in, you know, at, at mm-hmm. first, the the Renaissance just was like a no brainer, right? Yeah, there's so much stuff going on. It's a beautiful period. Um, why not go to the Renaissance, right? You skip from the uh, the 12th century Third Crusade to boom, we're in the 16th century Renaissance. Yeah, life's yeah. good. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, life was really good uh, mm-hmm. during the Renaissance, or at least you would think that, right? Um, but one thing that did plague, you know, Renaissance Italy and in a lot of the, the territory, they don't really talk about this in the game. Um, but syphilis was quite prevalent throughout. That I was time. going that too, and really, when you get into the game. You think the protagonist may have something to do with that. Yeah. 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 Especially he, he's, he's kind of free and loose, right? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I did hear that he learned French from uh, sleeping with French women. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the was a player and, and I, you know, that I have never hidden the fact that, you know, Ezio was my favorite character of the entire mm-hmm. series because, um, you know, looking at the themes, you know, him and, and Altair uh, really do kind of go through that same experience. They, they both lose their families 
uh, at roughly the same age. Mm-hmm. Um, they both come from, you know, from families who have a pretty deep history within the assassin order. And so when we start to talk about the themes of these games and tying the narratives together and some of these small details, um, one of the really important things that happened through, I want to say the first maybe seven or 10 Assassin's Creed titles mm-hmm. was linking the assassins together with just their names. Yeah. And, and I, that, that's something that um, is interesting because of the, the different languages and, and how we've got so many different cultures here. Um, but what's really cool about Altair is that his name literally means the flying one uh, who is the son of no one, right? Mm-hmm. And Ezio's name, you know, literally means eagle, right? Eagle or, you know, soaring, something of that nature. So they started to do this uh, throughout each, each entry. Everyone's name has some kind of importance, whether it's tied to the assassin order itself or being a bird of prey. Because if you look at all of the marketing you know, uh, imagery for the series. If you take a look back, like a lot of these pictures of the assassins show them, you know, flying in the air and they look like, you know, like a hawk or an eagle as they dive, uh, you know, after some type of prey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. The leap of faith, the, the, uh, I mean, this is kind of the physics and gravity defying (laughs) act that, you know, (laughs) these Mm -hmm. assassins all do jumping from, from very uh, large heights and somehow surviving on a bed of hay. I I don't know how they do that. It doesn't, it shouldn't make sense and it shouldn't work, but we just just don't think about it. Don't think about it. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's it's cool. You Mm -hmm. know what? I mean, for me, it was really uh, one of the coolest things about the game, right? It's like visually, it always looks amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, you get to see the entire city as you jump down. But yeah, the more you play, it's like there, there's no there's no reasonable way these people should survive every time they jump yeah. off of a tall bill. <laughs> you know, one or two times, like, sure. Yeah, like, I mean, it's even like with that too, like at least like a lot of times, like you're jumping into like just like a big pile of something. But then there are the times like you're jumping into like a cart of something. Like, and yeah. it's a small cart. Like there's a very, very small margin of error that can be made while jumping into that cart because one you should die no matter where you hit it there's no suspension in that thing uh other than like the hay or flowers you're jumping into so the Mm -hmm. fall should kill you but let's assume just assume that that stuff will the soft stuff will protect you when you're looking at like a like a like a wagon that's maybe you know five and a half feet like long and people back then are probably about five and a half feet tall (laughs) you have to land in it perfectly (laughs) well long story short if we if if i mean it would be a very short series if you know (laughs) if if reality actually set in right Mm -hmm. um but you know what what i what i think is interesting here is uh, as we're talking about the assassins and and who they are as people and the jobs that they have to carry out um when you think about the contradictions that we just mentioned right Mm -hmm. um tying altair and, and Ezio together again is the idea that, that Altair himself says that one may be two things. And, you know, that, that's, that's one of those ideas that when I, when I think about it, um, I think about cultures that are uh, like polytheistic or, you know, believing in multiple different religions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a much more Eastern style of understanding, you know, when you think it's possible to worship more than one God. Um, and there are, you know, there are cultures who do this. Um, and so when you think about the, the duality of that, these assassins, a lot of times, you know, they, 
maybe they're unwilling assassins, right? Like in Ezio's case, he was a noble. He was just a, a kid who was running around Florence and doing, you know, whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. Getting to gang fights with his brother, uh, with, with yeah. other, not really gang fights. It's more like Romeo Juliet family rivalries sort of thing. Yeah. It's, yeah, around it's doing that stuff from yeah. on rooftops. Yeah. Having a great time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, that that's something that they they really keep prevalent throughout the entire series is that you know almost almost every one of these characters lives a dual life of some kind, mm-hmm. um, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're living it at the same time though. I mean, no. it it could mean they're living, you know, different lives based on you know what era we're looking at, and and that's really what is cool about Ezio is that we get a chance to actually live with Ezio from day one. I mean, you're yeah, like <laughs> yeah. You, you, you're born <laughs> you literally get to see that's like the first trophy or achievement depending on what platform you're playing and i think you earn is like you know you're moving your limbs as you're coming out of the womb <laughs> yeah an assassin's born i think is what it is isn't it that's yeah that's the name yeah. of the trophy mm-hmm. you're, you're eight like eight pound six ounce baby Ezio, and <laughs> and you're, the first actions you take are throwing your your little you know baby arms and legs and <laughs> and um but going into the this you know this the the this rule of being you know one can be two, mm-hmm. um, it I mean it really is excellently stated with the journey that Ezio takes you know as he he lives through his life, and starting from day one, all the way up until the end, we get to see exactly what that journey looks like because he he goes from, you know from young man who doesn't even understand the world that he's in you know to mentor. And then he's basically seeking out answers for everything that he's gone through. Mm-hmm. And so, so for him, I, I mean, the, the journey that he takes is pretty profound when you think about it. Um, because we've got these tenets, we've got the, you know, the assassin order and what they live by. But Ezio really is the character who eloquently states exactly, you know, what this nothing is true and everything is permitted, what that actually means. Um, now you remember how he he ends up hooking up with I believe her name is also Maria, isn't it? His his future wife, or is it? Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what her name was. His future wife is Sophia, isn't it? Sophia, that's what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this this idea of contradiction mm-hmm. uh, comes back up, right? Like when when he's talking to Sophia when he first meets her and he's discussing with her, like this is the life that I live. Mm-hmm. She goes, "Wasn't well, that pretty cynical to say that nothing's true?" and you know, everything's permitted. What does it yeah, even mean? Yeah, there's in Revelations when this happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What does it even mean? And and so Ezio kind of, you know, flops that salmon on the table. And, <laughs> and, and he says something to the effect of, you know, societies have fragile foundations, right? Mm-hmm. And we must be the people that shepherds that. Like, we need to be the ones who take control of it. And since we're the architects of our actions, we must live with the consequences no matter what they are. And so you take a game that is you're, you're a person who's killing other people to advance your own, you know, your own wishes. Right. Yeah. But when Ezio says something like that, it really makes you turn and go, wow, this game is actually teaching me life lessons right now. Mm -hmm. You know, that the, the path that I'm on is, is one that only I can choose and I have to, you know, I have to basically uh, pay the toll for whatever that is. And, and so skipping ahead just a little bit, because there's a direct correlation to this mm-hmm. and Assassin's Creed Unity. So 
a lot of people didn't like Unity all that much, you know, right? There was glitches, mm -hmm. there was, you know, launch day problems, all that stuff. But if we just focused on that, we could, but there's so much stuff out there on that that we're not going to. Um, what I wanted to focus on though, is connecting these themes together because these games were, you know, they, they came out like five years apart, I believe. Maybe I think so. Uh, between Revelations and uh, Unity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was, there was definitely like a five-year gap here. So Arno Dorian, who's the main character of uh, Unity, which takes mm -hmm. place during the French Revolution, you know, he actually says something that mirrors what, what Ezio is stating, but it's a little bit more profound. And so what he states is that, you know, ideals can create dogma. Dogma can create fanaticism. So it, you have to walk your path and decide if it, you know, if the consequences that it carries is something that you can manage. And if, you know, if you can't, well, hey, it begins and ends with you. You're mm -hmm. the only one that can impact it. So, you know, kind of like we talked about with with our last deep dive, these are these are insane, like insanely deep, you know, bits of commentary that are coming out of a video game. And and Ubisoft was they had the care and the understanding to, mm -hmm. you know, to have this appear throughout. Um, so there's a lot of people that look at Assassin's Creed and just go, you know what? I can take it or leave it. It's just a standard game. But it's like, yeah. no, no, you, you've got some profound, you know, just, just things about the human condition that exist within the margins here. Yeah. I mean, if you, uh, I think someone so uneloquently put it as just another, another game with a uh, stubbly white dude in a hood, um, which I mean, the first, what, you didn't get a white dude in a hood until Unity. <laughs> Before that, you had um, in a, a man from, from Iran, then a man from Italy, and then um, uh, a, a, Mohawk Indian, a Mohawk Native American. Yeah. And then yeah. finally in Unity, you got a French guy. And so yeah. like that comment is like, okay, well, I mean, it's kind of showing you're a bit ignorant and you haven't even been paying attention the whole time. The fact that this has been kind of one of the most diverse video game series out there. Um, which I guess the first game did come under a fire that a little bit because they, um, that you had Altair did look like Desmond a lot like Desmond. And that was supposed to be playing on the whole fact that Desmond is going into the memories of the ancestors. So you kind of see Desmond in his place. But then when you got revelations, it came with a remastered version of the first game and they eliminated that. So now you now looked more like Altai, you looked like Altair as opposed to looking like Desmond hanging out in Altair's clothing. You know what, Joe? There is a reason for that, and and do you know why that is? Uh, I believe it's the what uh, is it? Do they call it the bleeding effect in the Animus? Well, the bleeding effect was um, the past now influencing your muscle memory and things you could do, mm -hmm. but more or less it was an issue with the Animus, and rather it was, I think, filling in incomplete data with things that it did know. Yeah, the yeah, I mean, the Animus mm -hmm. is basically a living computer, right? Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, we hadn't really been introduced to the like the modern day assassins nearly as much as we're introduced to Abstergo, which mm -hmm. is the basically the front for the modern day, uh, you know, Templars and and how they've continued to influence the world long beyond um, the historical events that we're exposed to. Mm -hmm. So kind of true to form for a lot of these these sci-fi movies where you've got good and bad forces working against each other. Um, I will reference the Matrix for a minute here because in the Matrix, you've got, you know, the machines fighting against 
the, you know, the humans that are left mm-hmm. and, and the humans kind of brag about how great their programming is with regards to, you know, using the matrix, they've got different programs that they utilize and they're, you know, th- there's stuff they can do that machines never can. Well, the idea is kind of the same here is that the Templars just don't have the best programmers compared to the ingenuity and the struggle of what the assassins had to do mm-hmm. um, because the assassins don't, you know, they're not as well-funded, you know, they're, they're a mobile organization that has to travel all around the earth. So that's really what their explanation was, was that the, the, uh, the software and the way that they built the animus on the Templar side, it just wasn't as perfected yet. So there are certain things about it. They couldn't fix one of them being that there are details that your brain fills in just like it would in a dream environment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You only, your brain basically can't make up new things for you. So it has to fill in basically all the gaps of these characters with faces and things that you've already seen. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. It's the same idea, but similar to, you know, Bob Gale and Zemeckis not telling you how, you know, Marty and Doc met. It's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have that's to, you have to find that out on your own. Uh, through some bonus bonus content. Yeah, you got to dig deep here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, that's why that's why we do what we do. That's why this yeah. is called deep dives. You know, mm-hmm. that's 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 why this thing even exists that we're doing here, guys. So, um, but yeah, so the early days of this series, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of cool stuff that we can dig into. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of this intrigue, and we haven't even gotten to the fact that um, you know, there, there's some deeper narrative things about why humanity even exists and and the, yeah. the idea of the you know the isu or the first peoples that basically you know created humanity as slaves right to mm-hmm. uh to build their you know their their weapons of destruction and all these other fun things that um the assassins and the templars end up fighting over later on yeah all the uh, all the trinkets like the like the apple of eden and um there's a scepter at some point who's i, I it's not the scepter of Eden. That's a little on the nose. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like basically all these other artifacts that were of the um, the precursor, the first people race uh, that were made to control humanity. Um, and it's them finding these artifacts and using them as weapons against each other or just trying to like the assassins basically use it as the guise of making sure it's not into Templar hands. So it could be used responsibly. Um, mm mm-hmm. Which is a theme all the way until uh, they kind of like turn that on their head for a little bit. But we'll get to that maybe in a little bit. Um, you mentioned like uh, some of the deeper themes that they uh, they explore in the series. Um, they often get overlooked. Uh, so what uh, what's more about that uh, that you wanted to talk about? Well, really what I was going to refer to mm-hmm. was how um, just in the spirit of the original games, like we're talking the Ezio trilogy here. Mm-hmm. Um when we start to talk about how the these this ancient race and the tools that they created impacted mm-hmm. the the humanity and, and what would end up this the struggle ended up happening between these warring forces, they actually created at Ubisoft a lot of these these fake documents that involved real historical people mm-hmm. and, and how a lot of the world's events that occurred, you know, pr- pretty much since the dawn of media and you know machinery and all this stuff, it was all because of them. And so they, they created these historical documents about like Henry Ford, for example, having utilized the Apple, Thomas Edison, you know, having utilized, um, you know, these, these uh, ISU artifacts to help mm-hmm. create, you know, the light bulb and all this stuff. And so 
when we start to talk about mythos, this was something that Assassin's Creed, they wove into real life. They made it feel believable. And so it really gave you something to attach to, right? Even though you know it wasn't, you know, this didn't actually. Oh, yeah, you know it's not it's not real, but yeah. I made it feel real. Yeah, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it made it feel real. Like, you know, there are times when you're reading these these fake letters and, and some of these documents that you find in the game, mm-hmm. you know, because there's glitches in the system. And um, we're not going to give away the entire plot just in case people no. haven't played mm-hmm. it somehow. Um, but but these are these are all things that are hidden within the game that you can find. And so they did this consistently for quite a while. Um, but that's kind of where we wanted to talk about is how the veneer started to crack, you mm-hmm. know, over time. Because, yeah, because the, the, the narrative was pretty much connected mm-hmm. um, for the first four games, five games. Um, I'd argue five. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first five games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, and I say the first five games, which comes, brings us up to Assassin's Creed three, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, this is usually where the fissure I think starts with a lot of fans in the franchise um, uh, with this, uh, with this particular game. Yeah. And you obviously mm-hmm. know I'm going to hop all over that because <laughs> for one, mm-hmm. we had a fairly unified um, approach to, to the combat system within the first mm-hmm. uh four games right so if you knew how to fight as Ezio in the first game you knew how to fight as Ezio in the third and they threw mm-hmm. extra things in there so already with assassin's creed 3 it's kind of working uphill because they changed the combat system um, I, I believe it was a completely different engine as well than everything that they had built the first four games i on. think so yeah it was a new completely new uh combat engine or yeah. i yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so it's uh it, it, it was it was unfortunate that I, I had to play those first four games and then I ended up at Assassin's Creed three because mm-hmm. I got so used to this Ezio character and, and everything that they had done to build it up to that point that three became a huge letdown for me. Um, but looking back at it now, I do have a totally different appreciation for it and probably not for the reason that you would think. Um, okay. So, <laughs> okay. So what's, what's your appreciation for it now? Well, so obviously you and I have talked about this mm-hmm. for several hours and people just don't have time for that. But, <laughs> but the, the, the reason why mm-hmm. I appreciate Connor or, or uh, actually uh, Ratona Ketan is his actual name in, mm-hmm. in, uh, uh, in Mohawk. But interesting thing about him, we talked about names and how they connect to the narratives, right? Mm-hmm. So the names of these characters pretty much all tell you something unique about them that sets up the theme for the game. So for Connor... Uh, his name actually means hound or wolf. And do you know why that's important? Is it because he's a lone wolf? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I appreciate it <laughs> is because he was the first assassin who could actually pet a dog in the game experience. <laughs> so, that's it. That was the whole thing. <laughs> so it, 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 was just, it was just irony to me mm-hmm. that, you know, his name means hound or wolf. And this mm-hmm. dude's petting every dog in colonial America he can get his hands on. Yeah, you can. You could. Yeah, that was the first uh, first game. You could you could you could pet anything. Well, yeah, most things pretty much yeah. all all domesticated animals could be pet in that game. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. but, but his name is really cool. Right. Not just mm-hmm. his Mohawk name, but the fact that his his uh, his given name too means strong willed. So. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's he's pretty strong-willed and and he's a lone wolf, like it's already in the name. And if I had known that going into the series, mm-hmm. um, it probably would have given me a better idea of what I was about to see because 
you know, up until that point, we've got these people who lived and breathed the assassin order for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like they've got family who have been involved in it. And, and even though, you know, Connor's father, Haytham Kenway, Mm -hmm. you know, was a Templar and, you know, there's, there's a lot of weaving storyline there. You know, he was really the first one um, who just didn't, he didn't live that life. So I think for me that also took me out of it a little bit, right? Because there's there's romanticism within the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there, there's just all of this booming thought. You know, the 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 artwork. You know, mm-hmm. obviously the, the sexy time we talked about with with Ezio <laughs> and the French girls. And mm-hmm. so that's what took me out of Assassin's Creed Three at first is that you've got these these massive buildings and mm-hmm. these you know these sprawling cities. And now I can climb a tree or skin a beaver. <laughs> and see, I don't know, like. I think I had the exact opposite experience because I appreciated how different everything was in Assassin's Creed three. Um, like you said, you had Altair and Ezio who did have like these very rich, like foundations within the order and within the brotherhood. And they had these more or less metropolises of their time is where you got to play around in. And then you get to Connor where he does, like you say, have family in the creed, but Connor is the he's half Mohawk, half European descent, and he doesn't really fit in in either world very well. So mm-hmm. where the other games really focused on um, different themes, like basically, um, I don't, I don't want to say honor, but like uh, tradition um, and uh, the brotherhood itself and um, like and knowledge and gaining of knowledge. Um, I feel three its biggest theme is identity because you have Connor who, again, who's got a foot in either world in both worlds and both like European and native American and doesn't really get to fit in well in either one. And he gains friends in both worlds, loses friends in both worlds. And then you come to find out on top of that, he has um, chosen to go with the way the assassins, but then has a father who is a Templar and as he's going along, finds out his father is not like the most horrible human being on the planet, as he was led to believe um, by his assassin trainer. Um, yeah. So to yeah. me, that's what was infinitely very, very intriguing is because you I thought he played out the struggle of Native Americans, like, I think very well is that because on top of that, each time Connor succeeds at something and thinks he's getting away ahead, something happens that just throws him 10 steps back every yeah, some, single time something tragic whether it was the death mm-hmm. of his mother at the hands of his father you know um or whether it was lo- losing his father after them finding common ground despite these mm-hmm. intense differences right yeah and, and then yeah. having probably one of the bigger architects of um the, the templar order uh, turning his own like his best friend from childhood on him to the point where they end up fighting and connor ends up having to kill his best friend growing uh, from childhood like everything yeah. of connor's story is terribly tragic and i just feel like that's that's like sadly a lot of the story of what happens in the native americans during the revolution and and onward is yeah. it's just every good thing that seems to happen there's something else that's holding them back uh and that's kind of what happens to connor consistently and then when it gets into like other gameplay yeah like new york city is definitely not what it is today uh, so you don't have like the tall buildings to around and do things with, 
But that's where I like, I love the wilderness aspect of it. Like being able to run around and hilariously the noises that the beavers make when you, <laughs> when you kill them and skin them. Um, it sounds it was, sadistic, right? But it sounds sadistic and it's horrible, but like yeah. play Assassin's Creed three and kill a beaver. Yeah. It will change your mind completely. Yeah, if you've got Assassin's Creed 3 collecting dust in the jacket right now, like mm -hmm. just just take it out, find the closest beaver, turn your volume up. And, <laughs> and, and, and you'll, it. you'll yeah, you'll find out we're not just being sadistic here. It is one of the funniest noises <laughs> I've ever heard. The first time I did it, I thought it was a joke. I thought like a, a ringtone went off or something. <laughs> so I had to go kill another one just to find this out. Just finally then you had to kill another one for statistical accuracy. You gotta get three in there. Yeah. Um, and then it, like, oh, like the weaponry in that, like, I loved the, uh, the Tomahawk was just brutally fun to, uh, to fight with. Oh my God. I, yeah. I like, I don't know, like, I know you said you struggled with the combat system and I just took to it. Like, I felt it was, I felt like with Ezio, you had to really time counters where Connor, you could just know the attack was coming, hold on a counter button and wait for the attack to hit. And then mm -hmm. you just got to choose how you wanted to finish him after that. So I'm like, oh, this is no problem at all. And you had the rope darts. We could sit up in a tree and then hang them from the tree. I'm like, oh, and like you could put on like, you know, eagle vision, which famously referred to as pigeon vision. Um, yeah. So pigeon you, vision. Go, I mean, you go all predator on them and you see like their body heat. I'm like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> I, I really do wish it could, somehow could have been called mm -hmm. pigeon vision because pigeons are rats with wings and it just totally <laughs> takes the, the alpha predator, you know, idea out of it. Completely out of it. Yeah. And given that like how like, how much pigeons were used in the first like what four games because you sent messages back and forth to like the assassins guild uh between you and them so <laughs> yeah. pigeons were a huge part That's of the true. game anyway it's true yeah <laughs> yeah it's like eagles or yeah, eagles hawks falcons mm -hmm. like they're all those are all birds of prey that are somehow woven into the fabric of the names of the characters mm -hmm. or or just the imagery that you see right but but yeah the pigeons played a huge part and so yeah. it's like why mm -hmm. don't we give them a little love you know like why, why not why yeah it? give it pigeon vision i think it's great right. but yeah um but yeah it missed opportunity counter and pigeon vision looking like the predator <laughs> and again like oh i just like again, like I just, I also just loved like, I know that's this is one thing else I do is like basically counters in every major event of the American Revolution. Um, yeah, yeah, the but, two the two guys one horse mm -hmm. segment. That was that was where it went too far. Yeah. <laughs> the Powerville ride was dumb. Um, yeah. Everything else I loved with it, and then again, like I said, like the whole like one step forward, two steps back, and then even with that happening, Connor just perseveres through all of it. He gets mad, he gets frustrated, but at the same time he refuses to give up and he just believes yeah. he can find his place in the world. If he just continues and pushes along the path that he's chosen. And that's just why like I love Assassin's Creed three. This is for any fans for like any top gear fans out there. Uh, and this is also a meme where you've got Jeremy Clarkson pointing to the Ford Fiesta, which he absolutely loves. And then there's the Volkswagen up. Um, and he says, this one is brilliant and it's perfect. And he's pointing to the Ford Fiesta but I love this one. And he points to the, uh, the Volkswagen. That's what this is for me. Assassin's Creed two brotherhood and revelations. They're the Ford Fiesta. They're perfect uh, for little hatchbacks, but <laughs> Assassin's Creed three is my Volkswagen up. Um, it's, or it's like how like um, everyone's dog is their favorite dog. Like, like to me, like I've got my tiny Corgi. He's my, he's, mm -hmm. he's my favorite dog in, in, in like infinity. But like you could have someone who's got this awesome German shepherd who listens to commands like at will and could do all these crazy things. Arguably that dog's better than mine, but my dog is my favorite dog. And that's Assassin's Creed 3. He's my Corgi. <laughs> 
and I knew that three was going to be a, a potential crossroads for mm-hmm. our opinions here because, you know, obviously you and I both loved Ezio uh, and, and we both loved Altair mm-hmm. and, and the way that they finished that story was, was just beautifully done um, because you, you've seen the struggle of the assassins and the Templar mm-hmm. and you've played this game for, we can probably estimate a, a solid hundred hours, right? Oh, for, easily. From one to four. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they, intersected Altair's and Ezio's story in such a beautiful way, in such a meaningful way, because they both came to the same realization after a point that that knowledge is power, yes, but too much power is dangerous. And they both understand this. And at the end of Ezio's you know, journey, mm-hmm. um, what he comes to the realization of is that he was meant to be a conduit for a message that was way beyond any understanding he could have because these tools that the the first people left behind mm-hmm. created the ability for generations to talk to each other over thousands of years right and and so Ezio this this master assassin you know like the the guy that everybody wants to be you know he all of a sudden after all of these accomplishments he strips his armor down and understands that no what i'm here for is one moment and it's for me to give a message to Desmond in the future. Yep. He doesn't know who Desmond is. He's only heard his name before, but but that's what he realizes. And so that triumphant moment, I think, is kind of what took the air a little bit out of Assassin's Creed 3 for me. But at first glance, I didn't give Assassin's Creed 3 enough of a shot because I just kind of based it off of the themes we'd already seen. Mm-hmm. We've already got revenge once in Assassin's Creed 2, you know, yep. and we got revenge again in this. But to your point, it is much more of like a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. And, and I started to see more of myself and Connor in the second time around than I did before. And, and it has to do exactly with what you mentioned is that he is a product of essentially a biracial marriage. And so am I, my, my brothers and I were, were all you know part of a biracial uh, makeup. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so like you mentioned, you've got feet in two different worlds. And I think the toughest thing for, you know, at least for me as a, as a biracial person was, was that I had more people telling me what I was as opposed to just trying to understand it for myself. And so Connor goes through that exact same thing. He's being told by people, you know, how to act and what to be. And, and he's introduced to these two different worlds. And that's where a lot of the struggle happened for him in the beginning. It's, it's not knowing uh, truly where his place is. Yeah. And, and he begins to understand this as he goes and mm-hmm. it makes him so relatable in a way that I never thought of. And so after that, after I, I had, you know, I literally grew with that game uh, and, and I, it sounds ridiculous, but I did, <laughs> I, I grew with that game and, and it really, I mean, I wouldn't say like I had to heal or I needed, I needed help to get there, but somebody might. And, and that, and this kind of game, I mean, with the themes that they have within it, you can absolutely pull meaning from that. Oh, yeah. And uh, I can't help but point out, when you said grow with the game, I'd like to point out now, for those of you listening at home, Mark's first playthrough of this game, he just <laughs> blew through it so much just to get it done um, that to get the Platinum Trophy, you had to go back and do a lot of side quests. Well, um, spoiler alert, in Assassin's Creed 3, your mentor dies. Good Mark Achilles. Played- Yes, Achilles dies, and Mark plays through the game, still has these side quests to go to. Achilles is a part of some of those side quests, so I went back to play them for Mark because he had no interest in finishing the game, but I'll just do it because I loved it. And then Achilles came back to life, which at first, like, okay, you know what? 
he'll just be there for the missions. But as soon as the open world starts, like he'll be gone. No, Achilles came back and you could simultaneously see him walking around and his grave. Yep. At the same time. <laughs> we we had a moment where Achilles is literally walking right in front of his grave. <laughs> and and your first words were, wait, wait, you played so little of this game that that someone who's dead is still living. <laughs> How is that possible? Yeah, yeah. That's that's it's just where you've gotten with that game. Like, no, I'm done. Let's yeah. go through it, play it to play it. It's out of here. Um yeah. Oh, it was but. total frustration for me. You know? <laughs> but but like I said, mm-hmm. I, I did come back to it with a totally different appreciation. And mm-hmm. and this is a very important point for the series. It's not just because it was one of the more popular ones, like Assassin's mm-hmm. Creed 3 from a, a sales standpoint. Um, it actually sold the most amount of copies the fastest for any Ooh. for any game in the series, right? Like mm-hmm. people were they were all hopped up on on buying this, you know, on day one. And so I, I don't I, I don't have the data for Odyssey and Valhalla, the most two recent entries in the series. Um, but I know that Valhalla is the best performing one of all time, right? Like Ooh, it, it okay. sold it sold the most amount of copies within mm-hmm. you know certain time frames. But but Assassin's Creed Three still remains the game that sold the most copies the fastest. So Ooh. so the yeah. hype was there. You it know, was. people people mm-hmm. were all about it. And I mean, and ultimately, you know, it's it is a cool era. Like mm-hmm. if you're if you're a United States citizen, you know, and you've got any interest in history, it's something that I think you're just going to be, you know, naturally gravitating towards mm-hmm. as a, you know, it's just, it, it just breeds interest, right? It does. And yeah. I'd, I'd like to think that, or like to think, I think it's time to point out that this is, although this is my favorite game, I do think this is the game where this franchise does take a turn to the point where I think we both began to lose interest in it. Um, well, the, because yeah, yeah, yeah there's yeah. a cr- there's a critical problem that mm-hmm. happens at the end of Assassin's Creed Three that causes things to really become disarray for the next several mm-hmm. entries in the series. But I'll, I'll definitely let you explain what happened. Yeah, so like we said, um, you you've got your foot in the modern world and uh, the past, and you're trying to figure out how to stop this uh, this bad thing that's like slowly been building. Um, you've been learning about through the past that's going to happen in your own current timeline well that bad thing is finally about to happen in the current timeline uh you're now as the 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 present-day character desmond miles you're going to go and stop that thing from happening and the last piece of the puzzle and how to stop that was what was a part of connor's memories so when you find that last piece that you need and you stop that bad thing from happening uh it kills desmond miles in the process so you lose the cohesive modern day storytelling aspect of the series. And it'd be one thing if like, they consider like, you know what, maybe we'll keep making games and we will just focus on the past, which is basically what they do anyway, mm-hmm. but maybe just completely leave out the future stuff. Uh, they don't do that. Instead, uh, starting with Unity, they make the modern day stuff basically a video game like you're working for a develop you're working for abstergo who's developing a video game yeah which is basically the memories of the assassins yeah. and that's how you're just trying to get information is out of people playing your video game yeah. and it's just i don't know it, it i don't think it, does, it just doesn't work like i'm not i'm not attached to that like a unity was kind of fun where like you've got characters who are part of desmond's story um are yeah. helping you 
as a, as a game developer to try and figure out more of like what's going on at Abstergo. So that's kind of interesting. But then I think that that more or less stops um, when you hit yeah. uh, Syndicate. We're not necessarily get uh, Black Flag. Yeah, um, like they, they reference like the team mm-hmm. that, that Desmond works with to, you know, infiltrate Abstergo. And yep. then... Oh, actually, I, I take it back. Yeah. I messed it up. It was Black Flag is where that was. And that's gone in Unity. But yeah, yes. continue. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and so ultimately, when when we lose Desmond at the end of Assassin's Creed Three, you know, the way that I've always tried to uh, help people visualize this is that, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you get a sandwich right, and you've got your all of the the ingredients of the sandwich, killing Desmond is like basically taking everything out between the slices of bread. Yep. And and so now we've got to build this thing back up. Mm-hmm. And so after these narratives and all of these themes that we've got from five games and hundreds of hours of of experience at this point. Now we're thrown into something that doesn't have any kind of, uh, you know, character that we can tether to, you know, try to understand. We're just in the simulation now. And and so that's not to say we don't get good characters out of this, though. Oh, no, I mean, no. no. I mean, I mean, Edward Kenway is is absolutely one of oh. the, the most complicated mm-hmm. characters in the series because, you know, he's a pirate, but he's also a father. Mm-hmm. And, and he's got all of these things that he's trying to balance. Right. Um, and. And to go back to the name thing, right? Like the, how they name characters. So Edward Kenway's name literally has to like do with either wealth, prosperity, mm-hmm. um, but it also could mean a protector or a guardian. And Ooh. so in Edward's case, he's literally the protector of the observatory, which if you remember in this game mm-hmm. is, is what the Templars are trying to access because if you have a blood sample of an individual, you can find them with the observatory. Yeah. And so it's, it's almost in the same vein as what the animus does in the present day. You know, if you've got someone's blood sample, you can access anything that they knew. Mm-hmm. And so, the, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, um, that that much, you know, pressure would be put on a character like Edward Kenway, because um, I think it was a refreshing change from mm-hmm. the, the Connor story, right? Like you've got this, these pretty heavy handed themes that are introduced mm-hmm. to you. But then you've got the the swashbuckling, you know, golden age of piracy, beautiful yeah. scenery. Yep, literally uh, just out to basically not have a nine to five. That was Edward Kenway's goal. Um, he's <laughs> yeah. like, you know what? My uh, my wife got me a job working at her dad's farm. That sucked. Hated yeah. it. Don't want to do that again. You know what I'm going to do? Kill this dude in his fancy white hood. I'm going to take his shit. Yep, <laughs> and I'm going to like basically live on the seven seas and become rich this way because that's a lot better. And then he just kind of gets thrust into the brotherhood in the in the midst of all of that, and yeah. you know he goes with it. Um, he goes with it pretty well. He's like, yeah, I guess like I came in, I I was in this for the money, but I suppose if there's a there's a greater greater task at hand, I'll I'll, I'll be a part of it. Um, mm-hmm. but also like to point out like trailers for these games have been always been epic um and um revelations and black flag had some of the best like musical mixes for their trailers where Mm -hmm. you had revelations had this great song by wood kid um called iron iron just beautifully mixed in with it and then you had black flag um that had uh started at the bottom by drake which again it describes exactly what edward was kind of doing in the first place Mm -hmm. and right in between you have this amazing scene of Connor fighting through the uh, revolutionary battlefield to coming home, uh, which yeah. made zero sense at all. It's like that. I get it's popular, 
but it doesn't fit. What the hell were you thinking? And, and honestly, it was like the one miscue. Oh, total I think, miscue. Yeah. I, I think they made because mm-hmm. yeah, you, you're dead on. Like the the trailers for this series have always been just crazy well done. I mean, even mm-hmm. in Unity, they they did um, the cover of Everybody Wants to Rule the oh, World. Oh yeah, by Lord, and that by was Lord. Not, it was awesome. Like yeah. I got really hyped for Unity with that. Yeah, I got mm-hmm. goosebumps from watching that trailer and. Mm-hmm. And I, I that that is one thing that I think Ubisoft did just misfire a little bit because mm-hmm. they were always so solid with themes, right? Even up until like you mentioned in Black Flag, because in Black Flag, one of the most powerful statements that ever came out of Assassin's Creed happened in this one, and it's when uh, Blackbeard and Edward are basically fighting for their lives, mm-hmm. and and Blackbeard ends up dying, but just before he dies, he says in a world without gold, we'd be heroes, right? Mm -hmm. And so that actually starts to lay the groundwork for these questionable morals, right? And which fight actually matters between these, these two, you know, warring factions, right? Because it begins to get muddied in, in this game. It gets even worse with Assassin's Creed Rogue, Mm -hmm. you know, where we literally play an assassin who turns because of, you know, some of these questionable decisions of the assassin order. Um, the same thing occurs with unity where you literally are raised an assassin. You've grown up with an assassin father and then you're adopted by uh, uh, the, the, a Templar family and you fall in love with a Templar, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's, that's where this, like I said before, the veneer begins to crack mm-hmm. quite a bit because you've had these heavy handed uh, topics about what faction is actually doing the right thing. Yep. And, and so now we we have no clue. Yeah, and then there's no there's no ever there's never like a solid course correction for that. There's never like, yeah, the assassins may have done some questionable things. However, look at all this other awesome stuff we do and how we've been trying to make up for that. They never really try doing that, so you kind of lose the plot in all of it. Like, okay, well, like the modern day stuff is gone. Yeah, Desmond saved the world. I guess that that's really great. But at the same time, the Templars weren't even the cause of that world ending thing. No, it was a natural disaster that was going to happen. And, so, they, st- and they still weren't even trying to do anything to save the planet, despite no. knowing about this. Mm-hmm. So like, OK, so like so this whole build that was coming up wasn't even a Templar like thing. So like, were they really that bad? Because our group's doing just as many crappy things. Yeah. And there's no course correction to it. The modern day story just isn't there anymore after um, after three is done. So you're really hoping, at least I think Ubisoft is really hoping that at least like their their in-game stuff, uh, assassin content would be really fun uh, and or like would be basically the big draw to keep like the story going. And it does for the most part. And um rogue makes you question things but still a really fun game um unity i think was my biggest struggle in the series um it was my equivalent of three where like the combat system was different and i hated it um it was the one where i experienced the most like glitchy issues with it i absolutely could not stand the protagonist arno as being like some weird lovesick puppy um and that's basically he's just mad his girlfriend's a templar and isn't paying attention to him um is why he joins the, the assassins <laughs> and to once again quote jimmy Wu, it's an oversimplification but yes. yeah co- completely oversimplification like it's there are a lot more complexities along the whole thing but that's i was i was just so mad at the game at the point that that's that's just where my my head steered towards it um 
But then what was kind of great is, is actually the next entry in the series was Syndicate. And that was a lot of fun. That was a really great game where you got to switch off between the, uh, the Fry siblings, between um, Evie and Jacob Fry uh, mm-hmm. in um, early 19th century London. Really fun yeah. game. Beautiful era mm-hmm. too. I mean, I, now not if you actually look at the the, oh, state no, of the, no. the streets and how people probably didn't shower very often, but probably not. Lots of lots of human waste in the streets is what I'm assuming. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 that is one thing I want to mention about about uh, Syndicate that was really nice mm-hmm. was that when we start to look at this name analysis that we've dove quite a bit into. Mm-hmm. Um, now Jacob and Evie Fry, their names do mean something slightly different than what we've seen with the other assassins. So they still do give you a pretty good amount of insight into what they're going to be doing in this, in this, this game though. Um, now Jacob's name literally means nips at the heel, which oh. if you remember, he's the one who kind of controls the, the street toughs that are putting all this pressure on the, on the Templars across London. Right. So his name, I mean, it, it literally translates to exactly what you're going to see him do throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Evie is a little more simplistic where her name literally just means Eve, which is inspiration for essentially what were the first assassins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Adam and Eve escaped the garden in the biblical sense, but in the Assassin's Creed universe, the garden is where the Isu built all their weapons and they escaped with the apple. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so this, this directly ties Evie back to the earliest assassins that we know of. Um, so in a way, they both kind of mirror the original assassins from that same viewpoint. Um, so it's it's just kind of a cool play um, on that that whole story. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, ultimately though, we've we've talked about how this is where the the larger narrative falls apart, right? Like yeah, we, we've enjoyed the games up to this stage, uh, mm-hmm. except for you know, you mentioned Unity had some issues. You yep. know, it divided a lot of fans. You and I both like I, but, I yeah, enjoyed the multiplayer in that. I was going to say the multiplayer was such a fun option in that game. Oh, oh yeah. that was a lot of good. That was a good time. Yeah, it was the only game in the series mm-hmm. that had the multiplayer experience that where you actually could play over aspects of the actual map. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like collaborative maps you could play on because before that point, yeah, the, the the online experience was just pretty much deathmatch and some... Yeah, it was just PvP know, stuff. This yeah. was more a cooperative, like, oh, you're actually going to work together as assassins to do things and carry yeah. out missions, which was really, really fun. And like, did that did that ever come back? Like that no. left and just, yeah, which is so weird. I'm like, this was such a great, like, this was honestly, like, I think the best part of unity and it never came back. They would never do it again. And I'm guessing it's, it maybe just wasn't popular enough. Maybe mm-hmm. it a sour taste in their mouth, but, yeah. but the, the, the larger issue here is that we don't, well, obviously we don't speak for all Assassin's Creed fans. So no, don't, no. don't act like mm-hmm. we're the end all be all here, but, mm-hmm. but the, the larger issue here was that, these games, while entertaining to play, I mean, I'm not going to argue that they were fun experiences, but after Unity or after uh, Syndicate, I didn't even really have any interest in playing Origins. And I haven't, I haven't even to this day opened Odyssey, which I do mm-hmm. own. I, I've seen uh, Valhalla's gameplay. It looks cool. Yeah. I have no intention of buying it. And mm-hmm. I, so I think for some of the fans of the series, even though these games are still performing really well, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's... it's got a very dedicated fan base to it. Um, like yeah. the people who are re- like love Assassin's Creed, like they, they keep going with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but I grew, I, I kind of grew out of it at, at, mm-hmm. for a little bit there because of the fact that I got so attached 
to the earliest themes of these games yeah. and, and the the wider narrative and i got so sick of saying goodbye to characters that i couldn't oh. bond with the game nearly as much anymore yeah. right mm-hmm. you yeah, when you yeah. yeah when you like you said like you get you get Ezio for three games and you have a bond with them and then you say goodbye to him and it's hard to hard to do and you start a new series like okay well then i can get attached to someone new and then connor's gone yeah one game yeah. that's all he got and then same with every other assassin since then they've well, got one game and they're done i will fact check you on on connor though because if you remember mm-hmm. uh there was a story about a woman named aveline oh, yeah. connor does get one memory in that game which is a really fun memory um yes. and uh not freedom cry freedom cry was ed Wale. yeah that that was the first mate mm-hmm. of yeah to, to edward kenway mm-hmm. um and, and this actually started off as a uh i think it was it was it a psp or was it a it was a vita a vita game yeah it was That's a vita game was. yeah would, psp had already had already been gone by that time and had moved on mm-hmm. yeah yeah so so aveline de grand prix is who we're, we're referencing now she's mm-hmm. actually the first assassin's creed game um, that that features a, a female like lead assassin mm-hmm. in the role, um, and so her game actually took place during the you know same time as as Connor's you know the same time as the American Revolution just down in in Louisiana, um, and and so yeah yeah uh, Liberation was a, a it was a really fun game because they actually yeah. ended up um, remastering that for was it the PS3 or was it the PS4 I can't remember PS3. which one I mean I think actually wait both because you could get it uh, you could download it for the ps3 and then you could get it as a remaster package uh for the ps4 so when you got um assassin's creed the the assassin's creed 3 remaster um uh freedom was just on there with it yeah that's Mm -hmm. right yep and so uh, this is the, the the point i wanted to make from long before we even wrote this one up was that Mm -hmm. The, the connections that you have from Assassin's Creed 1 up until Assassin's Creed 4. I, I mean, I, I formed my strongest attachments to the assassins and to the stories of them throughout that period. Mm-hmm. Like these are the most endearing personalities in the Assassin's Creed universe. I mean, they're literally the ones that allowed the games to continue. And having to say goodbye to those and not have additional experiences with them, it just took me out of the entire the entire experience overall. Oh, completely. And yeah. and then the the best they try doing is you can find like basically um easter eggs through collectibles on things. Yeah. Uh as the you games to dig go deep. on. Yeah, you're digging yeah. deep for that info though. Oh, you're getting very deep. Like that's the thing. Like uh uh there's a there's an easter egg to Connor in uh in Unity, I think. Or is it Black Flag? I'm trying to remember it's basically you find that um as Connor goes on and becomes and there's also again like off character like i mean basically off camera things he becomes a master assassin for the americas um he eventually like falls in love with some blonde woman um and then like everything else in connor's life they break up and he dies basically alone it's like oh well thanks for that closure on on that character i guess Mm -hmm. we find out that basically his life is nothing but suffering <laughs> despite his his best attempts to not have it be that way yeah. um it's like yeah so like we don't even really get to see him even live out that sorrow uh even more than he from what we already have we're just told about it through uh basically an email 
Yeah, so you really just get a lot more context with Ezio because they even filmed those featurettes that focused on his family, including his father as an assassin. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a, a lineage. Yeah, yeah, Assassin's Creed lineage. Um, it's, it, I mean, they actually started it off as like a, a small like YouTube series. Then they included it in with, you know, some of the extended edition parts with the um, the remaster. Oh, nice. I, mean, yeah, I was wondering that because I only got it. Like, I remember buying it at like a, like Walmart. It was like a like the $5 Blu-ray bin. I'd never even heard of it before. Yeah, yeah. They <laughs> they've literally made a full feature production just for context on Ezio's family. And, you know, they, they would expand into some other areas um, that involve Ezio, you know, with the... Um, there was like three other like small mobile style games that came out. Oh yeah. And then there was like, yeah, those ones that, um, oh, what were those called? Like, I remember like they were, I think they were just like Chronicles? almost like small, like side scrolling games. And Ezio was involved in those. Yeah. Was that the Chronicles series? Yeah, it was Chronicles. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, I mean, just think about that. You've got, you've got Ezio and so much more background, mm -hmm. but other characters just don't seem to get that. Yeah. Yeah, that extra rich content just isn't there. Yeah, I mean, I consumed all of it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. as soon as they gave me information on somebody, I was looking at it because you know it was intriguing. They were they were doing some pretty solid world building for a while here, mm -hmm. and and so you know the the only thing I will say in potentially revisiting Assassin's Creed because I mean for the I mean for the large the better part of the last few years I haven't even thought about playing a game for them. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that I, I'm, I'm not completely turning my back on this series. And it, it's because when they redid the combat system in three, you know, I, I, I you, you know, I threw my arms up in frustration here. Oh, yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's something that we shouldn't try because, you know, Origins also did the same thing. They kind of did a soft reboot of the series there with some of the, you know, the, the, the origins of what would eventually become the Assassins. You know, you've got new features. It's it's more of an RPG style game than the the original ones. So um, you're you're actually kind of character building again, right? There's some randomization of of what you get to fight with. Um, so the, that that alone interests me, you know, in some ways, right? Even though it doesn't necessarily feel like true Assassin's Creed in the original games, um, but they have taken steps to connect the narrative again. And there are consistent characters from the 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 modern day uh, world within this mm -hmm. who who now have appeared within Origins, Odyssey, and now Valhalla. So the you know Ubisoft has listened to the fans from that perspective that we understand we got off the rails a little bit here, so they're trying to rein that back in. That's so, appreciated. Yeah, that's nice. So yeah, so I mean, it it may be the right time to return to the series, and and based off of everything we've heard with with Origins and now Odyssey and now Valhalla, mm -hmm. uh, I, I really do think it could be a good time to to sit down and and just see what kind of world they're building now. Yeah, yeah, it would be fun, um, and uh, it would be a good break uh, for me just replaying three because <laughs> I I own that game on every not every system possible, but basically. I own it on three, I own the remaster on four, and I have the remaster on the Switch. I'm yet to play it on the Switch, but I will get there. Um, <laughs> so it'll be good to like, yeah, break out into a new title in the series instead of uh, replaying my old games. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think it, it could be time for something new. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's really kind of a good place to end it as well, right? I mean, it's yeah. the, the the game, the the series itself, they've had some really solid themes throughout mm-hmm. the years. Um, so I would say that, you know, Ubisoft hasn't really lost, you know, my trust necessarily, but um, they just lost my interest for a little while. Yeah, and I think, uh, like you said, I think it's it's uh, it's time to get interested again. And after all of that, are we really any closer to finding out what's true and what is permitted? I mean, I feel like I at least have a better working knowledge of what the Assassin's Creed names mean and how it contributes nothing to solving my life's problems. Well, at minimum, hopefully you're a fan of Assassin's Creed series and you've learned something that you didn't know before today. I know I did. Well, to our legion of three people listening, we thank you for joining us today. And if you actually enjoyed today's Leap of Faith, then join the conversation on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook by searching for at Digital Dissect One or Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. Please also leave us a review, no matter where you found us. And please tell your friends. This will all help us to keep bringing you more quality content in the future and ensure you know, that the likelihood that this channel will survive for another week. But join us next week for an in-depth analysis of the Nicolas Cage modern classic, Gone in 60 Seconds, a film that to this day somehow remains a hidden gem. And until next time, keep on dissecting.